How do fitness professionals who aren't marketing and technology experts build a profitable business? This podcast uncovers the secrets of fitness leaders who've already found financial freedom so you can take paid vacations, save for retirement, and work from anywhere in the world. I'm Kenton Boutwell, joined by co-host Nick Clayton, and this is the Fitness Leaders Podcast. Hey, Kenton, how's it going? It's going good. Beautiful day here in Nashville, Tennessee. Looking forward to today's guest. Yeah, I'm ready for the next episode of the Fitness Leaders Podcast. Our next guest is a personal friend of mine, and he's basically the trainer of trainers. He was inducted to the 2015 Personal Trainer Hall of Fame. He was a 2016 NSCA Personal Trainer of the Year. He's coached thousands of clients over his 20 years, ranging from the Jeans and Joes through NFL players and professional figure and bodybuilding competitors. He's authored three books, and I know he's working on his fourth. He's delivered over 100 speaking engage- engagements around the world. It's a hard word to say. We're excited, man. I'm excited to introduce Nick Tumello. Nick, how's it going? Feeling stupid and contagious, man. <laughs> Nick, where, where are you at these days? Where are you living? What are you doing? Just moved back to South Florida a few months ago, actually. So um, happy to happy to be back. Just getting resettled in here. The uh, real estate market's bonkers, but it's bonkers at a lot of places. But you know, challenge I'm up for. <laughs> Oof. How is the uh, how's the humidity? Hi. You know what I mean? Like, you know, so, but you know, every day's better by the beach, man. You know. Ooh, yes, that is true. So I know you coach a lot of trainers, trainer trainers. You write, you have businesses. Tell us just real quick, kind of what, what you're doing these days. So, well, I would say my main thing is do a lot with the NT Loop. Is my my version of super bands. Just their 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 solution. The problem that I solve is they're more comfortable to go around your body. So my saying, if people aren't familiar or are familiar, is strength bands or super bands, depending on who you buy them from, what they're called, they're designed to go around your bar, around your barbell for accommodating resistance or around your chin-up bar for assisted resistance. But they're not designed to go around your body. And if you've tried to put them around your body for waist-resisted deadlifts or runs or put them to pull your, you know, around your knees to create some sort of reactive neuromuscular training sort of stimulus, you realize really quick that they are extremely uncomfortable and not very stable, pulled the hair on your legs, the whole nine yards. So I designed a, a band that's designed to go around your body. It likes the body a lot better. Those are the NT loops. So um, they're doing great and become a staple tool around the world among trainers and fitness enthusiasts. Uh, that's consuming a lot of my time. And then um, I'm still writing articles and working on my fourth book, as you said, and also, you know, training, training clients. I have some distance clients and I have some, some in-person clients. A lot of people come visit me here in, in Florida to do like a one day mentorship or do uh, like a drop in it, doing this, want to do an assessment, have me look at their workout. It's very common. Very cool. And strength zone. You want to touch on that real quick? My former brand is performance university. But I've rebranded to what I call strength zone training, which is really my version of, of strength training. It's what I call true full range of motion strength training, where it's based on creating full anatomical range of motion str- uh, at each joint, because that's truly what makes a more a complete and all around strong 
body that's more adaptable. And if you want to talk about complete injury prevention for as much as you can prevent the preventable injuries, as long as you don't leave gaps in your strength, you're doing as much as you can from an injury prevention standpoint. And uh, so when we, I'll try to be as brief as I can on this. When we think full range of motion, we just think of an exercise. But what I'm saying is of as a joint. So if we look at face pulls as an example, I don't know if some people might not be watching this video. So I'll try to do my best to give an example. Face pulls are really hardest when your arms are at the side, when you're horizontally shoulder ab, AB ducted. But they're not very hard when your arm is in front of your body. But that's not your full anatomical range of motion and horizontal abduction. You could bring your arm all the way across your body and then all the way out to the side. So if you only did face pulls and some rear delt flies, the typical bent over rear delt flies and some horizontal pulls, you're really strong when your arm is out the side of your body, but you're not very strong when your arm is in front or across your body. You've left that whole area neglected. So what happens when you need, you know, you want to take up jujitsu, you have something across your body that you want to pull, you want to do a backhand in tennis, you name it. You're there, you're therefore less functional and more susceptible to injury. If you're not, if, if you're not, you don't have true full range strength through each joint through the entire anatomical range. So that's what I mean. That's one example. Very cool. All right. So everyone's sitting at home, they're fit pros. They're thinking like, wow, author products, coaching trainers, still training people. How'd you get started? Like what got you into fitness? Well, I'll, I'll try to be as bullet pointed on it oriented as I can on this. My mom is really my biggest influence. She was a bodybuilder in the eighties. If anybody's heard me talk about that before, I always give her full credit for that. We, my mom and I have a great relationship. We still bond over fitness. But when I was about 16 years old, some guy stopped me at a gym. I was visiting, I think I was visiting my grandma or somewhere in Florida. I wasn't living in Florida, lived in Maryland. Anyway, he stopped me and asked me, he's like, can I train him? He's like, you look like you know what you're doing. Can I train you? And I was like, what? And I was, of course, like reading all the muscle mags at the time. I know we're kind of in a new era now. Everything's Instagram and whatnot. But I really was still hungry for information, even at that time. And uh, just wanted to get the most out of every rep. And I would say I really carried that into my career, helping my clients do that. Anyway, he paid me for a couple days. And um, I think he ended up giving me maybe like 60 bucks each session. And, you know, when you're a 16-year-old kid or whatever, and you get that cash, you're like, wow, this is a lot of money, especially you know, uh, let's see how old was I as that was like 1996, maybe. So, you know, that was, I was like, man, I think I can make some money. You know, I like to lift weights. I can make some money showing other people how to lift weights. So I decided right then and there when I was 18, I wanted to be a trainer only because you can't get certified until you're 18. At least that's how it was then. I don't know if that's still the same now, but a quick question on that. So back then when you were getting into training, were you, um, Doing bodybuilding workouts, stuff out of the magazines, like you were saying. I mean, I was, you know, as a kid, my, you know, my, my big goal was to get my bench press up, you know, get bigger biceps. You know, I did a little bit of legs, but I, it's interesting. I had, I was high school wrestling and my wrestling coaches were actually pretty smart relative to, you know, from a strength training perspective, relative to a lot of what you hear, you know, about high school strength coaches and our, our PE teachers and team, you know, you hear all these horror stories about them doing silly things with people, but no, they were, they were very much into safety and, um, made sure that you train legs. And if they saw you do a lot of pressing stuff, they'd say, Hey, make sure you're doing pulling, you know what I mean? And, um, so, but that wasn't really their thing. They just, you know, just pretty intelligent that way. And, and I listened. Very cool. Where was, uh, what was your first job in the industry officially? First job was in the industry was working at gold Gold's gym at the front desk. 
I got fired from that job pretty quick because some guy actually wanted to train with me and I was supposed to be just a desk guy and the owners or managers didn't like that because I thought I was stepping on the trainer's toes. But um, the thing you learn pretty quick is that, you know, what I have naturally is I have the, the gift of the gift of gab. You know, um, I think my actually my dad is my biggest influence there. My dad used to take me to flea markets on Sundays as a kid. He was an antique collector. He's kind of a wheeler dealer type guy. I mean, he had a, he had a good job, but that was his hobby. He was always buying and selling things. So um, we would every Sunday I'd go to antique shows with him. I'd go to flea markets with him and he was always willing and dealing. And then I just got used to talking to people and very comfortable talking to people like I knew them. And I think that really helped me approach people and um, be approachable. And so anyway, I got fired from that job when I was like 17 or whatever, because I had some other guy that wanted to train with me and I wasn't supposed to be a trainer. And then I um, went to this other gym called Quest Fitness, uh, which happened to be right up the street from the house I grew up in. Also got fired from that job as a trainer. Interesting story. I talked about this one time, but I think some trainers will relate to it. I went to a couple fitness conferences in Philadelphia, paid for it by my own, with my own money, by the way, came back and I was using some techniques. So I was already pursuing my education at 18 years old, new trainer, just, just newly certified. I was already had that desire to want to be the best. And I, Apparently, I had a client that was with a, a previous trainer who was there before and then left and then had came back while I was still there. I can't think the guy's name was Wade or anything, like, something like that. Anyway, he went get back to school. And apparently I was like, I didn't know this, but the, the client complained to the manager whose name was Ken because the client said that I was telling them something to do that was contradictory to what Wade had told them two years ago, something with how to do lunges or something like that. Right. So they were confused or whatever. So I was called in the office. Of course, Wade had been there before I was the lowly trainer, non-academic guy. He had just come back from school and I don't, you know, I, I'm, I guess you could say I'm not much of a, I'm not someone who keeps my mouth closed or whatever. And I basically said, look, I was at this conference. Neither one of you two were, you two were there. You know, I'll rely on what's the, the latest and greatest trainers are saying. So I'm not going to apologize. They want me to apologize to clients like for doing what I think is right. So I basically told them, go shove it. And um, <laughs> oh, I was let go from there. And then I went on to the Maryland Athletic Club, which was the hot club at the time. They won all kinds of Urso awards. And it was a pretty competitive gym, actually. You had to be within three months. You had to make at least $2,000 in training per month on your own. You had to work the floor until you generated those clients on your own. It was very cutthroat and you got paid 60% of, of uh, it was 60, 40 to the trainer. And this was in 2000. So they paid well and it was super competitive. And within one month I had a full book of full book of clients and I was kicking ass. Hey, I want to touch on something real quick. Cause you brought it up. Um, you know, kind of when you were talking, you mentioned your dad being a willer dealer um, had a, you know, a lot of conversational skills. And then you also mentioned that you got in trouble for your mouth. So I'm just, I'm just curious, like, uh, to other trainers, how important and how have your conversational skills helped you and hurt you? Well, I would say conversational skills have never helped me. I would say my ego is what's hurt me. Um, and I'm not, you have to have a, a, a large sense of self in order to get out in front of people and feel confident in order to do that and have them say, Hey, look, I'm, you know, someone who's maybe a surgeon or whatever, and they're paying you to, to show them things. But what I mean by ego is, um, 
it's not narcissistic. I just mean where you just, sometimes you got to realize you don't always have to say everything you think. <laughs> you know, when I was a little earlier on, I just kind of had that just like, hey, you know, so I, you know, and I, that, I think that actually helped me with uh, when social media got really, really big. And sometimes it's just like, oh, I don't, I don't have to say everything I think right now. And, um, you know, this is not that important. So. But do you feel like your dad, you know, him being around him, I guess, and that you picked up, um, I don't know, just that helped you seeing him interact and how he was interacting at the flea markets, like you mentioned? Absolutely. No, no doubt about it. I mean, you, you could, I can pick up clients and not even try. And I'm not saying, and I'm not saying that in a, in a, in an egotistical way. I was just at the, getting my haircut yesterday, just talking. And I had two guys there just random talking to people who were like, Oh, do you have a car? Do you have this? And it's because it's just, I don't even go there soliciting. I wasn't even trying to gain clients. It's just, you know, people hear you and it's just how you interact. It's just genuine. I, I'm a people type person. So, um, you talk to people like, you know, them. you're comfortable, you're confident. Those are attractive qualities. And I don't just mean from like a sexual standpoint, they're just, a, it's an energy that people want to be around. I, from my dad, for sure. All right. So fitness or, or sorry, goals and quest didn't necessarily work out for you. I'm, I'm kind of curious at the athletic club, did they have any kind of education, any kind of training, or was it totally cutthroat where it's like, Hey, you're here, you got to go. Yes, that was a very special place, man, um, to be. So uh, a couple things about that. So I was only there for about a year before I went on my, went on my own, but, um, that was the year that, uh, PT on the net, some people don't even know that website now, but was just getting started. And the guy who started Richard Boyd actually came to our club because he had met the owners at an URSA or club industry and they were winning awards I mean, they were definitely winning the club of the year doing, they had all kinds of a big place all memberships to be on PT on the net. So um, our trainer manager, Stephen Holt was an ex engineer and he was actually writing some articles for PT on the net. We were the first club in, as, as far as I know, in the state of Maryland, I could be wrong with that. Not like anybody's going to fact check me at this point, but at least in the County to get a full line of free motion machines, which was a big thing in 2000. Mm -hmm. Keep in mind, functional training, the 3d thing was a big deal back then. That was the new, that was the newest, hottest thing. If you, you know, you were the best, if you were into this. So they bought us a whole line of free motion equipment. And at the time, if you bought a whole line, JC Santana, Juan Carlos Santana, the coach came and, and taught you how to use it and gave a workshop because he was working with them. So I had actually met JC a few years prior at a, at a fitness conference. I was at attended actually with my mom on a cruise ship, by the way. And he and I met and we bonded through combat sports. So I actually got a chance to, you know, he, we reconnected there and he was like, Oh, hey, I remember you a couple of years from the cruise. So, um, I can actually tell you probably my best memory from that is, um, keep in mind, this is like 2000, 2001. I remember asking JC what he thought of the postural assessments. Cause there was these big, I had just taken the Reebok. This is before FMS. It was Reebok functional movement screen, something. And it was like 21 or 27 tests taking that course with Bob Esquery who came from Equinox and, um, you know, that sort of postural assessment NASM that was getting sort of big at the time. And I remember asking him and he goes, he, I'll never forget it. As long as I live, he goes, ah, Nobody ever passes those things. <laughs> and that was like one of the most influential moments as a trainer, because I was putting so much thought and was so confused and trying so hard to do these things. 
And here was this juggernaut of a trainer who'd been around and I respect. And he just literally just swiped it. He was just like, eh, like that. Yeah. JC's a special cat. You know, it's funny you mentioned the free motion and, and more of the functional kind of selectorized stuff. When I was uh, running the University of Florida rec centers, I got in there. I think there was two squat racks, one deadlift platform and eight leg presses. First year, you know, I got rid of, I got it down to, I think, three leg presses, added two squat racks and a platform, and then some of the free motion line. And man, my office got lit up with students. Like, what the hell are you doing? I need a leg press. Hey, leg press is fine. It's a tool. Yeah. Like, why do we have so many leg presses and, and not other options, not other varieties to train other ways? Um, so it's funny. It's funny that you mentioned that. Yeah. So... You were there a year. I go, I go to a gym and if they don't have a, I love leg extensions. Makes my knees feel better. I love, and if they don't have a leg extension, I'm not joining. Yeah. Yeah. I I get why people are attached to certain machines. Yeah. My old gym had a neck machine. They moved it. I thought they got rid of it. I about had a heart attack and he was like, I relax. It's like, it's over. And they just moved it over there. I was like, you guys have a neck. We got to have balance. Um, All right. So you were at Maryland athletic club. What was, what was the next step in your journey? out on my own. I mean, um, I, uh, was definitely kicking butt and I just, you know, like a lot of trainers, I just looked at it and I went, why am I giving this club 40% of what I can do? I have no problem. I don't need them to generate clients. Like I'm, I was on the floor here. Yes. They were bringing in people, but I'm still generating them and I'm out doing 12 other trainers. You know, you had to, you had to make a minimum of 2000 a month. That was your minimum to the club like three thirty five hundred, you know, and it's, I guess I was thinking it was charged like 60 bucks a session. So you could do the math on whatever that was. So I, I realized pretty quick that this selling thing, this client generation thing is not hard for me. Um, and then because I was pursuing my education and spending money, I thought I just kind of had, I realized that other trainers didn't seem to have that sort of, that same sort of desire that I did. I mean, they, they, cared about their clients, but I didn't see them putting their money where their mouth is. You know, I would, a local conference would show up in Philadelphia and I would be telling them, Oh, I'm going to go up there and do this. And they most of them would look at me like, Oh yeah, whatever. Okay. That sounds cool. I go by myself, you know, so I was literally spending money buying VHS tapes, DVDs. I realized pretty quick that, you know, I had the edge on some people personality wise and, and I just had this passion. So, um, I started training some clients outside of the gym. I never stole any clients from the gym, but you know, somebody's husband or wife who doesn't, who's not a member says, Hey, can you train my husband at home? You know, who was a member or can you train my neighbor or my mom? You know how this stuff works. So I, you know, I would go to a house here or there. I'd go to a local studio here or there and eventually left the gym there and, um, you know, lost about half my clients. I basically said, Hey, this is where I'll be. I'm not going to take anybody from you, uh, from the club. Started my own gym at 21 with a with a guy I knew from Gold's Gym who had had a, a failed nutrition store. He was 10 years older than me. Mark Spataro is still one of my best friends. Love him like a brother to this day. It was great. You know, I, I would say I wouldn't say I'm the best business person. I'm a great trainer and we were successful uh, because what we did training wise, not because what we did business wise. We just had tons of referrals and did things in the community. I don't know if we st- if we did that now with all the things that are out now, CrossFit, Orange Theory, um, you know, all the fast food fitness type places. And I don't say that in a negative way. 
the market's a lot more saturated now. A lot more saturated, and, and um, it's a lot harder to just build your reputation. You were, we just had the reputation as being the best trainers in the area. Hey, what was the name of your gym? Fitnology, actually. That Fitnology. Was, that was Mark's name. I still love the name. Yeah, Fitnology. And um, <laughs> Mark has, has a trademark on that name, and he came up with that name. I think that was the name of his nutrition store, actually. But absolutely brilliant. What was that first gym like? What kind of equipment did you have? How big was it? So we had, it was about 3,000 square feet. We were in a, in a nice warehouse flex space in a very prime area, pretty high-end area in um, Baltimore County. If anybody is familiar with the area, it's the uh, Timonium Towson area, which is by the fairgrounds to be specific. Nice area. And it was actually, it's funny, it was actually down the street from the Maryland Athletic Club. And there was a lot of gyms starting to pop up in that area. We had Brick Bodies. A lot of people know Brick Bodies was up the street as well. That the, the Brick family is pretty big in fitness as well. And Mark had actually purchased. So Mark had actually started the gym before I got in. I actually came as an independent contractor. Um, he had had another business partner, and who I had known from the Man Athletic Club. He was pretty much. It was a trainer there before I was. But it turns out there was some shady stuff going on from this one guy. And uh, Mark and I just bonded. We'd already known one another from Gold's Gym, and we kind of lifted. You know, Mark and I, but Mark's a bigger guy, 10 years older than me. He was a, a kind of bodybuilder type guy. We're, we're both kind of, you know, I, I don't know how you call it, just kind of, you know, masculine type guys. So we always kind of looked to check each other out like, all right, yeah, you know, you know. <laughs> you know, it was a little bit of that sort of overly macho sort of like, we didn't talk much, but we were kind of like, you know, but once I started working there, he and I bonded really quick. And we actually, big story, we bought, we mainly bonded the first ever NASM conference, National Academy of Sports Medicine, when, when Michael Clark bought NASM, they had it in Las Vegas. And I had just, I was only t- recently 21 or 22, it was in 2001. I actually still have the manual for it. And um, Mark and I went, and I'd already been to a bunch of conferences. Mark had admired my, you know, passion for education. So he came with me. We were both making great money so we could afford it. He, after that trip, we had just, we were just like brothers. We were just like inseparable. And then the other guy got pushed out. I became ownership owner. And, and that was that. Um, but Mark had bought out an old FBI gym. And so we had some really old, cool, like York dumbbells that probably are collector's items. We had a couple <laughs> table crossovers and then we bought some used after I came along, we, uh, you know, bought a bunch of the smaller equipment, the, the medicine balls, the bands, and then we also found some used free motion equipment and and bought, we had like five, I think five pieces of free motion. Very cool. So what, what was your day-to-day like there? So you kind of mentioned like the business side of things and how much were you involved on that end versus just training clients and, and focusing on that? That's an awesome question. It's actually really relevant to um, something I've been thinking about lately, but very quick, funny story about that first NASM conference. I was at a class where it was like ACL performance and prevention. I had people run in shuttles and two people blew their ACL in that class. <laughs> I will never forget that as long as I live running the shuttle. Cause it was like a, it was like a rug or something. Oh. And then of course you get people racing and, you know, and um, you know, trainers and whatever. And it was just like one ACL went the next one, somebody else went and, we're all at the luncheon and like the next day, you know, two people in the crutches with their legs up. I'm like two people blew their ACL in the ACL prevention course. My average day was a very, there's wide a range of mix as you could think of with clients. So I would have a girl training for a 
uh, a fitness competition and she later got into figure and I would have two groups of seniors every Tuesday and Thursday. I had this, these two groups of seniors. It was four couples basically. And they were just split into four. So it was two, you know, two women, two men and two women, two men, all neighbors. And um, then I'd have like a professional, we had a, a big horse, a steeplechase track up North from us called Schwann Downs. Turned out it was a very high end track. And I got a horse racing lady who um, came in after having a scope and she wanted to get stronger. She worked with me. And in three weeks, she did a race in one. She was already like a top trainer. And she just started referring everybody to us. And she was one of those people, like one of those just whales and uh, a referral whales. And when she says she's one of those people that like, if she doesn't like you, she'll tell you, you know, she's, she scares a lot of people, but if she likes you, people go, Oh, Sheila said it, you go. And next thing you know, you know, I got her mom or dad neighbors, so, um, I had some, actually I had some MMA fighters at the time before it was called MMA. It was called NHB, no holds barred. That's just because of my background. So what about Bali Tudo? Well, that was called Bali Tudo at the time. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, it was the most random mix of general fitness to high end, to combat athletes, to, um, getting on stage to look great, to someone training for a wedding, to someone in a wheelchair. That was my average day. And you said it's like you're, you're almost forced to kind of learn how to modify things, you know, and adapt on the fly and then learn, you know, because those those different clients all have, you know, different needs, different personalities, different abilities. Uh, but it's almost like a great way if you're a good trainer that wants to learn to be forced to kind of get out of your box and, and really expand so you can see what's out there and then kind of boil it back down and figure out what, what really works. Yeah. Well, I mean, at this time it was either you went to a gritty sort of bodybuilderish gym, which are making a comeback now, but you know, they were saturated for a while and they kind of disappeared. And then the, it was a wellness center, which was what the Maryland athletic club was. It was higher end, you know, they had like an arthritis pool, maybe an Olympic pool, nicer locker room. It's, it's when the sort of like the lifetime fitness sort of clubs were coming around that were higher end. And then it was a training studio and a training studio was basically just um, those clubs all had trainers. And normally they had like a mini studio for only the trainers to go. Remember those, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's another thing I learned real quick. I don't train clients in there. That doesn't, that doesn't expose me to the rest of the members. So when all the trainers were, we had a, a, a really nice studio upstairs at the Mac, all the trainers stayed in there. I took all my clients downstairs on the gym floor. And then they wondered why I got all the clients. Yeah. You know, hey, can you touch on that really quickly? Um, the importance of being on the floor, why you felt like that was important and how it helped you get more clients. Oh, it's simple. I mean, I've, you know, it's, it's, that's my showroom, right? I mean, that's where the clients are and every you're being, you're being inner as a trainer, you're being interviewed when you don't realize you're being interviewed. You know, people are looking and they're thinking, do I really need a trainer? I mean, how much are they really doing? Does that trainer look bored? Does that trainer look checked out? You know, does that trainer look like, do I, and of course you have the silly ones. Like I want to look like, I want that trainer's arms. All right. Right. Well, you can't, you know, it's not realistic. That's genetic, but some people, people think different things, but if you're just there getting to know people and I never solicited business, that was the other thing. It's like people realize real quick when you come up to them, say hi, and then you give them the, the tip. Right. And um, they, they get it. Right. And they're just like, man, I'm just here to work out. Like, don't, don't try to sell me on stuff. So I just was down there and just talked to people and people would be like, Oh, that's a cool exercise. You have, 
you know, and then they, those two knew one another. Oh, Nick, Nick's the best, you know, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. So Nick, what was, what was the next step after you did your own thing? Around 2000, 2007 was my very first article on T Nation. And uh, December of 2007 was when I published, by the way, I will never forget that date because it's very special to me and, you know, milestone in my career, but it's very special to me for two reasons. One is less, this is more just an internal reason is I never learned how to type. I mean, I was a C, B student in high school, never learned how to type. I'm not an academic. I never went to college and um, I've never liked writing emails and typing and texting you know, I've always liked verbally. I've always communicated best that way. So it was getting, I forced myself to write. I mean, I, I haven't thought about it for a long time and forced myself to write because I knew that having something on paper was just more powerful than having a YouTube video. And um, so I, I forced it on myself. So that's why it's special to me. But also it was the time when I said, there was two, two other reasons why one is that, you know, I thought, man, I got this great business here. I'm, I'm chock full of clients, but it's all on me. You know, if I get sick, you know, I had ACL surgery, I had to take a couple weeks off, you know, it's just like, I don't make any money, you know? Um, so you're always bound to that. And I was like, I also can't move. If I ever want to move or do something, it's like, I'm starting fresh. Uh, I'm literally starting over. And so what do I have that can, you know, that, that can, be international or at least, you know, national that'll help me if just in case I want to go somewhere. That's when I started kind of getting the idea of wanting to get my name out. And two is there's always that little test where you go to conferences and there's a Nick Clayton there and there's some other people and you think, well, I feel like I, you know, I feel like I'm pretty smart and I've learned a lot, but what happens when you get around the other best trainer in the gym, you know, and, um, and what happens when I just find other people who have got as the same passion that I do? I, I wanted to, I almost wanted to like test myself. You know what I mean? There's always, a, there's a saying in, in NFL. It's like some people want to be a starter. Other people want to be a star. I didn't want to be, a, I don't mean like a star from my own self, be like everybody. I just wanted to be like, no, if I'm going to do this, I want to be one of the best. So it was almost a way to kind of measure myself and say, so let me put things out there. And and as, I'll be as honest as I can with you. Some of these conferences I'd go to and I'd hear about some of these coaches, they're great. And I'd go to their class and I'd be like, eh, I think I could do better. <laughs> I mean, really, I did. I thought oh, this is cool. I mean, I respected where they got, but I was like, I think I can do better. I, I think I can make this more dense. I think sometimes they talk about things that make them sound good, but they're not practical. I just said, well, I could talk about it or I can do it. So that's how I motivate myself, you know? So I just put it out there. And um, my second article was on T Nation. It's called How Not to Warm Up. It got a lot of really good, still published, and got a lot of feedback. I mean, even like Mike Boyle emailed me from it. I had met Mike before. I had some other NFL strength coaches email me from it because I had talked about some mechanics and doing the, uh, you remember the leg cradle stretch? Yeah. I talked about a better way to do that and a couple other things and challenge some common dynamic stretches at the time. Now everything's mobility. Back then it was dynamic flexibility. So I, that was kind of that sort of like, okay, not only can I do this, but I've got some unique ideas that some of the heavy hitters think are valuable. At that, at that point, that was just like, that, that was like, that, that created the monster. Then I was like, okay, now it's full go. And then I just became obsessed with writing and putting myself out there.
So is that a full-time job for you or a significant source of your income? Definitely didn't, wasn't at first. Um, my first income was I made a DVD. I know we're dating myself at the time, but that was at the time. Yeah. You know? um, and shortly after that, they were made digital versions. So I had the hard copy and the digital copy. My first two, I came out with two at the same time. First one was Secrets of Self-Modified Fascia Release, and the other one was Secrets of Self-Joint Mobilization. So that was sort of laying the groundwork for a lot of the things that we're really, you know, doing now that are very common. But keep in mind, at some point, they weren't as common. And we all really, I would say we all owe people like Michael Clark and NASM and people like Paul Check um, for bringing some of these things into more you know, you don't have to agree with everything they say. I certainly don't. But in regards to being some of the pioneers of getting these things in fitness, those did well. So, um, and I actually had a client of mine, client's son, who was like 16 years old and he was like a prodigy and he did all my video editing for me. And I, you know, paid him a couple hundred bucks and he was, you know, happy about that. So I was able to actually make my production cost very low to have those at the time as well. So, um, made money and then that turned into speaking engagements. Speaking did well and you know, kind of took off from there. Yeah, it sounds like a hybrid model, Nick, is what I was gonna say. He's uh, you know, doing stuff in person, still working with the clients, got some digital products, and then also doing some public speech speaking to kind of grow his brand. Yeah, I, I never wanted to be a stage stomper. I never wanted to be the person who's who who is on all the stages and not training any more clients. Because, you know, so this is it's fun. This is actually something I've never said before because it just hit me, actually. I'm actually more influenced by musicians than I in, about that as a trainer than I am from other trainers. And I know that sounds really weird, but let me, let me explain what I mean. Certain musicians, bands, their first couple albums, they're really good. And then they're stars, right? So they're not living the same life that motivated them to write the songs. So they're not singing about relatable shit anymore. They're singing about being on the road, right? And it's just in groupies. And it's like, okay, well, I can't relate to that anymore. Like you started off singing about living on the streets of Baltimore and, you know, how hard it was. It's like, I can relate to that, but I can't relate to drugs and groupies and being on the road. So like, I never wanted to be that, that person who lost touch um, with what I was doing. And in fact, that was one of the reasons why I was motivated to start teaching is because so when I said like, I think I can do better. It wasn't because I thought I was smarter than anybody that was on stage. It was because I go, okay, it's mostly strength coaches and rehabilitation and clinicians, you know, it was Stuart McGill and Mike Boyle. And I have great respect for them. I think we can learn from everybody in all allied health professions, but I go, McGill's working with back people in a lab in Waterloo and Mike Boyle is the OG of having your own strength conditioning center. I go, he's not working in a big box gym. He's not doing in-home clients. He's working with mostly kid athletes. You know, I was like, so he's not even dealing with setting up workouts. He's doing a paired set that has a lat pull down or, you know, you know, if, if you have your own thing, if you have your own studio, you can do a paired set with a lat pull down and a back squat. Okay. First off, most of my clients can't even do a back squat because they don't have the shoulder mobility for it, or they don't want to even do a barbell and the lat pull down. If I'm at a gym and even when I had my studio, I still wanted to make money. I would train some clients at gyms or whatever, wherever I was allowed to. And the lat pull down is across the gym. So if I pair up lat pull downs and squats, someone's on the lat pull down as soon as I leave. So it's like logistically that looks good and it looks good in your class, but I can tell you've never tried this in a gym because for most of the people in this class who are training at big box gyms, this shit ain't going to work. 
So I just, that's when I said it, I can do better. It's because I had a better perspective of what most of the trainers in the class were experiencing on an everyday basis. Right. And I was very frustrated, to be honest with you, that I wasn't hearing much of that. You know, everything was periodization and, you know, do one week is predicated off of this week. And I was like, every day my clients come in and go, can we not do legs today? My knees kind of hurt because I gardened all weekend. All right. Here's my workout, ball it up, throw it in the garbage, start making shit up because I have to make stuff up right now, right? Because half my workout's lower body. This is called every day as a trainer. Not one person teaching at any of these conferences even acknowledged anything remotely similar to that. Yeah, yeah but he, you, he's bringing, you're bringing up the point, right? That you have to be able to make quick adjustments, right? On the fly. Um, everything's not always going to be perfect. Correct. Well, my whole point was the people who were teaching me to be a better trainer weren't doing what I was doing. Right. They, they weren't working with the everyday person. Right. They weren't in the same environment. So, you know, I can learn some cool exercises from them or a neat little assessment or whatever. But at, when I go try a lot of this stuff and it kind of fails, I realize it's not my fault. And I think a lot of people you know, keep coming back for answers because they try it and it doesn't work. And they think, oh, well, I have to, you know, my clients just aren't serious. I need more serious clients. It's like, no, this is where the money is. This is the, the you're just, you're just learning from people who are, who, who are in a small percentile of what most of us are doing. 95% of the money is in general populations, you know? So why are we mainly learning from a clinician and someone, you know, who's mainly training kid athletes and pros. Celebrity trainers. <laughs> well, listen, I'm not saying they, don't, they, they all know tons of stuff. What I'm saying is we have to understand the perspective of which they are coming from. No, they're not celebrity trainers. They're incredible influencers. And I don't mean in the Instagram way. I mean, in le legit, like the industry is, would not be where it is if it wasn't for these people. We're all standing on their shoulders. What I'm saying is, is that the perspective wasn't there. Without a doubt, I, one of my favorite quotes, and I'm probably going to butcher it, but it goes something to the, to the, you know, the sense of, you know, if you can't explain it to a third, a third grader, you don't know what the hell you're talking about. And when I first heard it, I was like, the hell is that? You know, and I, I'm working with clients when I first heard it. And I'm talking about transverse dominance, pelvic tilt, lumbo-pelvic hip complex. Yeah. You know, and I'm talking to my clients and I'm staring at them like, yeah, my clients aren't motivated. They don't care about this stuff. And then I'm like, you know what, when I go and take my computer and to get fixed and they start talking about gigabytes and Hertz, I'm like, dude, I don't know what the hell you're saying. Like, I'm here to get my computer fixed. Just fix it. Tell me what I gotta do. Yeah. And then it kind of dawned on me, like clients have lives, they have kids, they have jobs, they have careers. They're not coming to learn anatomy. They want to learn how to get in shape and get healthy. So yeah, like you have to take the science and then break it down and apply it and deliver it in a way that really resonates with people. And they also got to like it in order for people to work hard, first got to come to work. Right. So, I mean, here's, here's a great example. Again, this is not, I'm not saying anything negative. You know, you talk to Mike, boy, I don't know if he still holds his policy, but he always talked about how he, he thinks arm work is, you know, useless because it's, you know, and I get it, you know, you only have an hour or so with athletes two, three times a week, maybe four, if you're lucky. So that's not getting the most done at the time, you know, but those, these are athletes, they got to be tested, but you're going to take a general fitness client who says, I want better looking arms and never do arm work. They're going to look at you and go, I think I've told you when we first started that I wanted my arms to look better. We haven't, I haven't felt a bicep burn ever since we've trained, but yet my neighbor goes to this trainer down the street 
and he's a pro bodybuilder and he does an arm day. I think I'm going to go to him. That's, that's really what I'm saying. It's, it's, it's not that Boyle's wrong. It's the perspective he's coming from is, is different in that environment in a team setting or when it's kid, parents just dropping their kids off and say, Hey, I hope my kid maybe becomes an athletic prodigy or just, or just get rid of my kid for an hour while I go do adult stuff. Right. Great. You're, you don't need to be a customer service agent at that point. you got a bunch of teenagers who don't know any better and they'll do whatever on their own. But when you got 35, 40 year old mom and dad who has desires and basically says, look, I got my money. And if you don't give me what I want, I'm going to take it somewhere else. Someone who does. Yeah. I'm number one. You work for me. One of my favorite, uh, one of my, you know, colleagues, he always cl- calls his clients, his bosses. If he says 10 clients, he said, I got 10 bosses. I go, that's the way trainers need to think. I think uh, it was a JC Santana presentation at NSCA, probably mid 2000, uh, 2015. He was doing a four hour pre-con on how to train. And uh, it was fantastic. And then I'll never forget this. You know, he finished it by saying, look, if you can get 80%, 90% of a good workout in, and then you finish your clients with the crunch circuit or a tricep blaster, that's great. Because guess what? When they walk out of the gym and their abs hurt and their triceps are sore, they're going to think they got the greatest workout in the world. Like, is it the best use of time? It's five minutes. Do they feel great? Yeah. Did you get... 55 minutes of great stuff that's going to make them move and feel better. Yeah. He's like, that's a win that's going to keep clients coming back and get them results. It's like, God, that's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. And they're going to buy into other things now. And they're going to, they're going to buy into all the other things that you are doing. Yeah. You're also treating them like an adult, right? They come in and they go, I saw this exercise on YouTube or in this magazine. Can we try that? And you go, ah, Yeah, you're like, making me think about my clients right now. They yeah, all do that. They hear these things. Them. You look at it and you go, oh, that, that's kind of a cool exercise. Be like, you know what? I've seen that before. Let's try it. Or if you if you think it's going to hurt them, you go, you know what? I'm I'm a little worried about that with your elbow tendonitis thing. Got you know, that elbow tendonitis thing you got going on. But I'll tell you what, I, I can see you want you want to do some more bicep stuff, right? I got something for you. And people are like, oh, he's paying attention to me, you know. And now some people, especially if you're a younger trainer. You're a little more idealistic. You're thinking, oh, these guys sound like they're compromising. And then this and the other. Okay. Let me give you a great story. I'm not going to tell you which team this is, but it isn't. It's a legit story. It's from an NFL team. I was told this very recently from an NFL strength coach. I had one. This new dietitian was hired by the team right out of school and uh, said, oh, we're taking out all the fried foods from the menu because, you know, fried foods are bad, right? Well, then all the players stopped eating at the cafeteria completely. So instead of getting a little bit of the fried stuff that they wanted, but at least they could monitor, you know, the rest of what the players were eating. The players said, well, if you don't have what we like, we're not even going to eat here. We're going to cross the street. So they, they basically, so then the rest of their, they had no control over their diet because the players said, Hey, we're adults. We're not high schoolers. We're adults. We don't have to eat here. We went across the street. So now the team lost complete monitoring of anything that they ate because of this one person not understanding that this is not a dictatorship. Humans are humans, right? So that was quickly learned real fast that no, you got to bring those, bring those back on the menu. So yeah, you got rid of the thing. You had the ideal situation, but you got a worse outcome. 
a way worse outcome because you were not thinking of the of people first. So it's not compromising. It's called being realistic <laughs> and understanding people. All right. Well, we got to get back on track, um, but I do want to kind of sum up the main points there. It seems like they're just, you know, most trainers are going to be working with the general pop a lot, you know, so there's a lot of people out there influencing the industry who work with athletes and different things. But main thing is, don't forget who you're working with and then also listening to your clients and what they have to say so you don't lose them. But um, let's get back on your fitness journey. Their session, it's not your session. So what, what got you to Florida? The weather, man. I mean, um, I, uh, I, my grandma, both my grandparents are long, long passed away many years ago. But I used to come down here every year, visit my grandma and loved it down here. And, you know, I mean, for obvious reasons, palm trees, beach, it's a fitness mecca. I got to the point where my gym lease and my apartment lease were up within like a six month period coming up. And I just was, you know, my, my speaking was picking up. My products were doing decent. Um, you know, I still, my, my arrow was pointing way up in regards to things that I was doing outside of training clients. And I was still training clients. Um, not full-time, but not part-time. I mean, so here's the one thing I got to say. Full-time for me, I was one of those trainers that I would train literally 10 clients straight through. You know, so it, it, it's just a little sidebar. When people write these articles like, how to spot a bad trainer, you know, they eat with their clients. I ate during clients. Nobody gave a shit because here's what I would tell clients. I'm not saying it's a good thing. Here's what I would tell clients. I go, look, I got this hour slot if you want it. You just have to know it's when I normally eat lunch. I'll train you. You just have to be cool with me eating. I won't sit there and be eating and ta- and coaching you while my mouth is full, right? You'll finish your set while you're resting. I'll take a couple bites and I'll put it down. Are you cool with that to have this session? They go, they look at me and they go, yeah. Like they never even gave a crap. So it's not like I didn't, I did it out of disrespect. I did it out of, I like making money <laughs> and I have endless energy and I love it. So I just told clients, I'll train you at that time, but I need to eat. Are you cool with that? And they all were like, that's a no brainer. So, I mean, there was, I was training like literally nonstop. So part-time for me was like seven hours a day. And then I would go home and write and work on courses or and travel during the weekends. Um, so I realized I, you know, I uh, might take a good chunk of pay cut for a little while when I gave up all my existing clients to move, but I had some, you know, money in the bank. I had some products and projects. I had just got my first book contract from human kinetics. So I said, Hey, let's, let's take this risk and take it from there. So I moved. Very cool. So let's transition a little bit, get into some rapid fire questions. I'm going to kick it off and then kick it over to Kenton because there's one question I keep wanting to ask tips that you have for trainers that, that want to get involved in publishing or speaking. Like how do they get known or the, that first article published? Find somebody else who's already been published in the publication that you want to be in and contact them and then have them connect you. But before you have them connect you, have an actual article that you have written that you can send them that they can look at and they can say, don't just be the person that says, oh, I want to write. I can do that. They're not just going to refer you because then you might just you might just ghost and never provide anything. And then you're wasting that publisher's time and you make the referral person look bad. So the person can say this kind of fits the guidelines. This looks like something that they would like. Um, yeah, I'll send this over. All right. 
Good answer. Great answer and great stories. Is there anything that you want to say about your transition to Florida or kind of just getting us up to current day before I jump into my questions? No, I mean, we've pretty much covered nothing I want to add. We've, we've got a lot covered so far. I'm interested in your questions. So what would you say was the biggest challenge in your fitness career and how did you overcome it? I never really reached any challenges because I would just love this stuff, you know, so training a lot of clients and businesses, none of that stuff ever really was a challenge. The biggest challenge that I had was only in the recent years, which is related. One is better understanding what the market of trainers is interested in versus putting out things that are just about what I want to talk about, right? Because sometimes you want to talk about things, but it might other people might not just care that much about it. And then other times you post something that you don't think is important, all of a sudden it gets a gazillion likes on Facebook and you're like, this is what people really like. So it was just thinking, it was just before I did things, especially for products that I was going to sell, is, you know, what, what, do, what do, what's the market look for? What do people really, really care about? Um, and that was, that was definitely a challenge for me. The other challenge for me is I'm not the type then I, I need to be marketed to all that much. If I see something I want, I just go buy it. And I kind of feel like it's kind of annoying when people are constantly advertising it, constantly telling me about it, constantly telling me about it. But in this day and age of social media, we're, 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 we're flipping through and forgetting things so quickly through social media because we don't really value it that much. That unless you're posting stuff on a regular basis, it's missed by a lot of people. So I had to get used to just re-upping things and just telling people, Hey, I got this product out. Hey, I got this product that I got this new book out. I got this new book out to me internally. I'm like, man, I've already said this a hundred times, but nobody ever complains. And every time we get sales from it and people email me go, um, do you have something? Are you, you have bands? And I'm like, do I sell bands? Where you been two years? <laughs> but I just realized that's how, how it is. So that was a challenge for me to, to come around and, and look at that from other, from the, the other side. Yeah, they say the uh, squeaky wheel gets the grease, you know. <laughs> you got you to squeak a lot. <laughs> For sure. All right, moving on to the next question. I know you have obviously been around a lot of, you know, influencers in the industry and just people that have made big impacts. But I would like to know, did you have any mentors along the way and kind of who do you feel like has impacted your career the most? Obviously, my mom is a huge influence. I, like I said, rock bands actually really influenced me. I came up listening to punk rock and I was going to sound weird, but you know, the band bad religion was, was my favorite band. They were very influential to me just because they, they sung about important lyrics and they, they had their own style. So I, I appreciate an original sound. So if you notice, and when you talk to Nick, you go, Oh, Nick kind of has a, he's kind of unlike other people, you know, um, that's a very punk rock thing that, that came from nobody else. Um, uh, but in regards to training, I would definitely say uh, my first exposure to more technical based training is, was Paul check. So I always will owe him a debt of gratitude for that. Um, there's certainly plenty of things that check does that I'm not interested in, not into, but give credit where credit is due. And then I would say from over the longest uh, influence, I'd say the person I've always resonated with the most and was probably the most influential in my career as a trainer was probably JC Santana, Juan Carlos Santana. All right. Moving into more business stuff. What do you think is the key to having a profitable fitness business? And what would you, you know, what would your advice be to trainers out there? Great question. Two things. 
and this applies to any product, we buy things and we do things for two reasons. Makes us happy, solves a problem, right? We go to concerts, we go to football games, we like talking sports because it makes us happy, it distracts us from whatever else is going on, makes us happy, right? and it solves, a, it solves a problem. So in this day and age, I actually was having this conversation with a fellow trainer the other day. Um, I said, why would you buy stuff now when there's so much free stuff? And I, I'm not asking like saying you never buy stuff. I'm saying like as a person who sells stuff, like what would make you? And she says, well, right now I like if someone can organize it all. Maybe I can find it all for free out there online, but it might take me months or years. And I don't know which is, you know, which is good and which is bad. But if someone could take it all, put it together and connect all those dots, I'd pay for that. I go, that's a problem that you want solved. So that's one example. I literally had that conversation two days ago with a fellow trainer of mine. So um, if you do that, then um, I think you're positioning yourself for, for success. You know, obviously you have to have some decent marketing and communication skills have to be on there, but it comes down to that. What um, do you think are the biggest mistakes that you see other coaches making? Well, I would, I mean, I could probably go on and on about this and not because I like to, I'm not trying to bash anybody else. I would say first off is like I already said, you know, not thinking about how other people are looking at it and what they're interested in kind of, kind of putting on a performance for, for yourself, the performer, not to benefit others. Um, and I would say also not thinking that you're just one voice and if people are paying attention to their education, they're hearing other voices, other people, other coaches who have just as much of an impressive resume as you, right? You were a strength coach for this championship team, but they were a strength coach for this championship team. But yet you're saying two mutually exclusive things, right? You say this is great. They say this is crap. You know, you say that the, the answer to all correcting posture and movement starts at the feet. They say it starts with breathing. Well, you both can't be right. It's got to start somewhere, right? But you both say everybody's getting better and improving performance, right? So everybody who's listening to you is going to be confused now. Either that or they're just going to pick sides or they're just going to say you're dogmatic. So you have to understand what are other people thinking and then tailor how you voice it from there. And I'll tell you exactly how to get around all that. When you tell people how to train and you start saying, well, this is dumb and start, you know, you're going to piss people off and maybe you don't care about that, but they're not going to listen to you. So you should care about that if you think you have valuable things to say. But if you just say, this is how I train, I'm not telling you. And you just come off this way. You don't have to say these exact words, but if you just come off as conversational, Hey, I realize there's a lot of ways to do this. You're all getting a lot of results from things, but here's this technique. I personally think it's kind of dumb. Here are my reasons for kind of, maybe it's kind of dumb. Maybe I'm missing something. I don't know, but I just wanted to share that with you. You get the same message across, but nobody thinks you're trying to do something to them. Nobody feels like you're calling them dumb because of the way you said it. You're just saying, that's kind of how I think. And it just seems like, hey, I could be wrong. So I think there's a lot of tone deafness when it comes to the way people communicate uh, and, it, and why, why it silos people. The only people that already like it are the people who are your fans and they just dig in deeper and everybody else just goes, ah, that person's kind of an asshole. Definitely. Yeah. You keep, you know, I know you mentioned ego earlier, but I think that's kind of what it all comes back to really. It seems like there's just a lot of big egos, especially in the fitness industry. Um, yeah. I mean, that's okay. You got to have a big ego to get up on stage, <laughs> but it just, it doesn't mean here's the thing. It, you can have a big enough ego to know no stage is too big for you, but as long as you're humble enough to know, it's still pretty big. That's, that's the difference. 
Yeah, definitely. All right. What do you um, see uh, as the biggest trends in the fitness industry right now? What do you think the future of uh, fitness holds? The biggest trends in the fitness industry are social media. Um, I'm not going to, I mean, we could, you could probably look at these magazines and they could say, here's what's going on in the clubs or here's what people are mostly, you know, some type of class or whatever. But that's a small part of the um, pie. I would just say, you know, you right now, we're all in the same world, which is the get attention world. Uh, That's the currency. The currency is attention. And if you don't get attention, you don't make money. So um, you have to be willing to stand out a bit. I'm not saying you do things that compromise your values, but um, if you're not interesting or you're boring, you don't have unique opinions and you're just a cover band for five other coaches before you, there's a thousand other people that are doing that as well. So you have to be willing to take some risks. You have to be willing to maybe upset some people with a certain topic um, because that gets people talking. You know, I know that's going to sound contrived to a lot of people, but it is what it is, man. You know, persuasion and, and attention. So one of the best things Nick can do and read books on this stuff. If Nick wants to be considered one of the best trainers, he can start, you know, he comes up with some core exercise or something that's called the, the single best core exercise. If he starts calling it that, right, a bunch of other people are going to get pissed off and start, cha- you know, challenging it. This is not the single best core exercise. And they're going to do podcasts debating, is this the single best core exercise? He has already won. We've talked about him. We're not talking about our, what we're doing. And we're already putting his thing in the category of the best. At the end of the day, people forget the facts, remember the fight, and remember the name. And all he did is use us to get free publicity for him. That's the way you got to do it nowadays, man. People like to rage click. People like to argue. People like, fine. You got to, you got to, that's the game. Play to win. Got to play the game. I, I like it. No, sometimes you steal that from my core store flagship program for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can't be afraid to be controversial sometimes. I think you got to take a, you know, take a stance, be opinionated. That could be a look great at, thing. Look at boxing. Boxing fights are now a YouTube guy versus <laughs> legends. You know why? <laughs> you know why? Because we're bored to death of boxing. There's so much boxing for so many years and it's free on YouTube. It's not interesting, right? So we, we the only thing that's interesting is like, man, I don't really kind of like to see this YouTube guy who looks like he can punch and he can, right? Fight one of these fighters and see, maybe they'll get a lucky punch and knock out one of these guys. It's interesting, that is it's engaging. Dana White's pissed off right now. You're talking about Jake Paul. <laughs> yeah. So if you're the trainer posting your infographics and posting your deadlift videos and wondering why, you know, and unless you're like super sexy and you're half naked, right? And if you're trying to information wise and you wonder why nobody cares, it's like because they're getting a thousand of that, right? You know, a, a day. It's valueless to them. It's not interesting anymore. Yeah. That's that's a great point. All right. We're going to move into some fun questions and then I'll switch over to Nick and, or, you know, Nick Clayton and we can wrap this up. But um, what is your favorite food? Pizza. What, what kind of pizza? I'm like a Ninja Turtle. Pizza. Uh, <laughs> regular cheese, extra sauce, and well done. Thin crust. Mm, yep. Nailed it. All right. Favorite book? No books I've really read that I've been like, oh my God. So um, nothing really comes to mind, really. I mean, I'd probably say favorite book I've read recently. Well, uh, how about your, what are you currently reading, man? Forget about the favorite, but what are you, what, what's the last book you read or what you're currently reading right now? 
I'm not currently reading anything because I'm writing my own book. And when I write my own book, I stop reading everybody else's stuff because it just distracts me. I become very tunnel visioned and I shut out everything else in order to get it done. So I, that's how I am. Um, the last few books I was reading were about, um, I like reading books about social psychology, you know, why we think, um, so books on persuasion. So there's a, I read an old book called Persuasion. It's like written in the nineties, but it's like a legendary book about persuasion. So I just read that. I forgot the author's name. That was really, because Dr. Um, Cialdini, Robert Cialdini. Cialdini, Cialdini. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, that was the last book I read. thought it was, thought it was pretty good. Oh, actually, I read um, Hate Me Now, Love Me Later. Yeah. And um, I read his book and I really like it. And what I really like about his stuff is he's got so much success with problem type kids. And if you looked at all how he coaches, anybody else would say he's like the worst coach ever because he trash talks the kids and he cusses, you know, uses exercises, punishment. He does all the things that you would say, not except he takes he, he's gotten more kids who are on their last resort who've committed crimes. He's got him in the NFL. He's straightened him up. He's taken pro, you know, so he's, he's had, he's gotten, he's built programs. He's basically taken everything from the ground up. And so what he's doing is working, you know, and, and, and his results speak for themselves. I mean, and the coach, they, none of the kids bad mouth him at all. They all say he changed my life. So um, I respect that. And I like, he actually was a, he grew up in Compton. He was like the only white guy in his town. And um, so he comes from that sort of edge. So I, I like that rawness about, about him and um so i got his book and i thought it was thought it was great and plus it was hilarious yeah i'll have to check that out i hadn't read that all right favorite movie um first one that's coming to my mind is ace ventura i just i was always <laughs> back, Jim Carrey. Back, back to the future and ace ventura probably and this last question something unique about you not related to fitness um when first thing i pop into my head i was when i was a teenager my first ever job job two jobs was I worked at the, the county fairs in the summertime and I worked at a, at a hot dog stand and I got real quick at, at <laughs> hot dogs uh, and I made really good, really good money and all cash too. So. <laughs> all right. Awesome answers. I'm going to transition it over to uh, Nick. Now we can wrap, wrap this up. Right on. Well, Nick Tuminello, we appreciate it. It's been a great hour. It's been great catching up with you. You've shared some amazing nuggets. How do our listeners get in touch with you? Google knows me. Love it. We will post your links in the show notes. For everyone that's listening, thank you for listening. And make sure to check in next time and subscribe to our podcast. Until then, we'll see you later.